Welcome to a new episode of Canada, A Yearly Journey. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. First, on every single tier, you get completely ad-free episodes. And you get a say in what topics I cover on my podcasts. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking Donate. On that note, if you want to donate... If you donate $5, you get a thank you at the start of the next episode of Canadian History X, Canada's Great War, and from John to Justin, and on social media. If you donate $10, you get everything from the $5, plus this episode is sponsored by you with your name at the start. It's also stated it's sponsored by you on social media. If you donate $20, you get everything from the $5 and $10, plus a second episode sponsored by you and promotion of something you're working on. And if you donate $50, you get everything from the $5, $10, and $20, plus you get to choose a topic for me to cover on Canadian History X. You can also donate at buymeacupofcoffee slash craigu, and all of these links will be in my show notes. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter, my handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram and TikTok where I put up daily videos about Canada's history. Just go to Bairdo37. And if you like, you can find weekly videos about Canada's history on my YouTube channel. Just go to youtube.com slash c slash CanadianHistoryX. You can also find transcripts of every episode I've ever done on my website. Just go to CanadaEHX.com. And on that note, I have to say welcome to my newest patron, Tom McMillan. Thanks, Tom. I truly appreciate you joining on as a patron. Well, we've reached our first full year of Canada's history, 1868, and there's plenty that was going on and would have a long impact on Canada's history. One event was the return of Louis Riel to the Red River area. He had been living in eastern Canada, but was getting tired of the legal work he was employed in. After a brief stop in Chicago, where he worked odd job, and a stop as a clerk in Minnesota, he returned to the Red River settlement. One year later, a Red River resistance would begin. It was also during this time in Manitoba there was a movement to create an independent country. The movement was pushed by Thomas Spence, who had a retail store at Portage La Prairie. He persuaded the council and the committee to petition the British government for a legally constituted administration. He was elected as the president of the new reorganized council, and he set up New Caledonia, which was later known as the Republic of Manitoba and that's Manitoba with an H at the end. No reply ever came from the British government, at least at first, so the new republic was created. The republic never had any formal borders, and the Hudson's Bay Company traders refused to pay any taxes in the area. By 1868, the republic was told by the colonial office in London that it had no power, and the republic would soon collapse, but Spence would serve on the council of Lou Riel and help to form the new province of Manitoba. It was in 1868 that Joseph Onasakenrat, who was the chief of the Mohawk people in the area what would one day become the Sanatage Reserve, wrote a letter to the seminary stating that nine square miles of land had been reserved for the Mohawk in the trust of the seminary, and that the seminary had ignored and neglected that trust by giving themselves sole ownership over it. With nothing being resolved, Onasakenrat would launch a small attack on the seminary one year later, after giving the missionaries eight days to hand the land over. The standoff was ended when local authorities came in to remove the Mohawk from the seminary area. The land was also classified by the federal government as interim land base and not a reserve, 
which would allow it to not be covered under the Indian Act. This, many years later, would be a major event that would lead to the Oka Crisis in 1990. That's actually something I covered on my podcast, Canadian History X. Remember, that's EHX. It's a very interesting story and one of my favorite episodes, to be honest. Another big event was the decision by the Hudson's Bay Company to turn Rupert's Land and the Northwestern Territory over to Canada. Now, it didn't actually happen this year. It was just the decision to do so. This would increase the size of the country immensely, and it would eventually lead to the creation of the territories and the provinces of Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. The Rupert's Land Act was passed by the Parliament of the United Kingdom, and this was a decision to authorize the transfer of land, but the actual transfer would not happen until the following year. The London Scotsman reported, quote, There seems no alternative but for the Hudson's Bay Company to yield to the inevitable and relinquishing their long-cherished idea of receiving a lump sum, down either from the Imperial or the Canadian government. End quote. As it turned out, the Hudson's Bay Company would actually receive £300,000 in compensation when the transfer did go through in 1870. It was during the summer of the year that the name of Pincher Creek, Alberta would be born. It was in this year that a group of prospectors, Joe Healy, Red Rock Jim, Mart Holloway, John Nelson, and William Lee, were in the area. While there, they lost a pincer. These are what we call pliers today, in the small creek nearby. These pincers were important, as they were used to trim the feet of the horses, and it was not something you wanted to lose while in the middle of nowhere. Hence, the name of Pincher Creek was born, but not quite yet. In 1874, the Northwest Mounted Police conducted their march west and arrived in southern Alberta. They would set up their headquarters at nearby Fort McLeod, and patrols through the area would soon begin. Soon after, one Northwest Mounted Police officer happened to discover the rusting tool that the prospectors had lost six years previous in the creek. From there, Pincher Creek was the name given to the creek, and in 1880, that name appeared on the Geological Survey Report and is now the name of the community. On May 13, 1868, Wilfrid Laurier would marry Zoe Lafontaine. Laurier, who was not in great health at the time, had decided not to ask for her hand in marriage because of his health. But when he found out that she was about to receive a proposal from another man, he decided to propose. The couple would have no children, but Zoe would be heavily involved in various organizations through her life, including the National Council of Women and as the Honorary Vice President of the Victorian Order of Nurses. Now, according to most sources, Laurie regretted never having children with Zoe. And while the couple would have a very happy marriage, this didn't stop Laurie from seeking companionship elsewhere, and possibly having a son. And, let me tell you, his son looks a lot like Laurier. On November 14th, Charles Monk's time as Governor-General came to an end. The end of his term as Governor-General was greeted with little fanfare. The Kingston Week Standard reported, quote, No Governor-General ever left Canada with less notice of a public kind than his departing excellency. He may not have been a bad Governor-General, for we know nothing bad that he has done, but he has been anything but popular during his long administration. He kept himself aloof from the people of Canada, not caring to mix with them. End quote. Around the same time, Sir John A. Macdonald wrote to Nova Scotia Premier and future Prime Minister Charles Tupper, quote, Monk has managed the relations between Canada and the United States with great discretion when the slightest mistake might have created a war. End quote. The following year, on February 2nd, 1869, John Young would take over and become Canada's second Governor-General. There would be several noble births that would occur in 1868. 
On January 16th, Octavia Ritchie was born in Montreal. She would become the first woman to receive a medical degree in Quebec in 1891. And together with Maude Abbott, she would form the Association for the Professional Education of Women to advocate for women to seek medical or advanced degrees. The man with the very long name, John Babington Macaulay Baxter, was born on February 16th, and he would go on to become the 18th Premier of New Brunswick, serving from 1925 to 1931. He had also served in Parliament, serving as the Minister of Customs under Prime Minister Arthur Meehan in 1921. Baxter would also lead the maritime rights movement, which was born from the anger being felt in the Maritimes by the loss of influence for the provinces since Confederation. From 1935 to 1946, he would serve as the Chief Justice of the New Brunswick Supreme Court. Another person born in 1868 was Emily Murphy. Murphy would often spend time with her two older brothers, something her father encouraged, and she would share responsibilities with them equally. She was heavily influenced by a grandmother, Ogle Gowen, who happened to have founded the local branch of the Orange Order in 1830, and she was also influenced by her uncles, who were a Supreme Court justice and a senator. At the age of 21, she would marry and have four daughters. Once her children were living their own lives, Murphy began to organize women's groups where housewives could meet and discuss ideas and plan group projects. She would learn about a woman whose husband sold the family farm after abandoning his wife and children, leaving them homeless. At the time, property laws did not give women any legal recourse. Motivated by this, Murphy would campaign for property rights of married women. And with the support of rural women, Murphy would pressure the Alberta government to retain the rights of their land. In 1916, she was able to get the Alberta government to pass the Dower Act that gave a woman legal rights to one-third of her husband's property. Following being denied the ability to see trial, Murphy then protested to the Attorney General of Alberta stating, quote, If the evidence is not fit to be heard in mixed company, then the government must step up a special court presided over by women to try other women, end quote. Her request was approved, and she became the first woman police magistrate in the British Empire. That appointment as a judge, though, would cause major controversy. Her first case was on July 1, 1916, and she found the person guilty. The lawyer for that person called into question her ability to pass any sentence, since technically she was not a person. And while the provincial Supreme Court denied the appeal, this would begin the process towards the person's case. In order to test the issue, Murphy allowed her name to be put forward to Prime Minister Robert Borden as a candidate for Canadian Senate. Borden would state that he was willing to do so, but he was unable to because of the 1867 British Common Law that stated women were eligible for pains and penalties, not rights and privileges. Over the next several years, Murphy would begin to work for clarification on how women were regarded under the British North America Act of 1867 and how they could become senators. Enlisting the help of four other Alberta women, Murphy would sign a petition on August 27, 1927, asking the federal government to refer the issue to the Supreme Court. Joining her, and a couple of people I will mention in just a little bit, would be human rights activist Nellie McClung, ex-MLA Louise McKinney, and women's rights campaigners Henrietta Edwards and Irene Parlby. The famous five would argue the person's case, and in 1929, they were successful, and a major milestone for women's rights in Canada had been reached. So, there's a few other of the famous five who were born this year. Three, in fact, which is pretty amazing. Louise McKinney was born in Frankville, Ontario in 1868, and in 1903, she made the move to Alberta where she began to live as a homesteader with her family. 
A year after women were given the right to vote in Alberta in 1916, McKinney would run for a seat in the 1917 Alberta general election in the district of Clare's home. As a candidate for the Nonpartisan League, she was able to defeat her Liberal opponent, William Moffat. Interestingly, she was actually one of two women that year to be elected to the Alberta legislature. For McKinney, her election was no small feat. She defeated the first resident of Clare's home and at one point its mayor, and he had also served in the legislature since 1909. McKinney would serve until 1921 when she ran for re-election but lost to the independent farmer's candidate, Thomas Milnes, another mayor of Clare's home. Her role in Canadian history was not done, though. McKinney would become one of the famous five who argued the person's case in 1927, which I mentioned was culminated in 1929. And McKinney was one of the few of the famous five who did not publicly endorse eugenics. In 1931, she would briefly serve as the president of the Canadian Union and the Women's Christian Temperance Union, while also being named as the commissioner for the first general council of the United Church of Canada. Sadly for McKinney, she would pass away in 1931, only two years after the person's case victory. In 1939, she was recognized as a person of national historic significance, and a plaque commemorating her is on display in Claire's home. In 1997, the person's case was recognized as a national historic event, and in 2009, she was named an honorary senator by the Canadian Senate, along with the other four members of the Famous Five. But I'm still not done talking about the Famous Five because a third member of the group was born this year, as I mentioned. Born in London, England in 1868, Irene Perlby came to Canada in 1896, and by 1913 she would found the first women's local for the United Farmers of Alberta. Her work with the organization helped to raise her profile across the province. During this time, and for many years after, Irene lived in the Alex area and was a well-known and respected member of the community. Her talents as a hostess were widely commended, and she would often host members of the Canadian press, MLAs, and cabinet ministers at her home. Eventually, she would be elected to the Alberta legislature in the Lacombe riding, which she would represent for the next 14 years. During that time, she was appointed as a minister without a portfolio, becoming the first woman cabinet minister in Alberta's history. Throughout her life, Parlby was an advocate for rural Canadian women and children, and she pushed for public health care services and municipal hospitals. And she would pass away on July 12, 1965 in Red Deer, the last of the famous five. A mural of Parlby also exists in Edmonton, and in 1966, she was recognized as a person of national historic significance by the Government of Canada, and the plaque honoring her can be found in Alex. The day when the problems of government the world over are essentially human problems, and our very homes and all that we hold most sacred are threatened by appalling dangers from without and by subversive forces from within, it is well that our national existence should be fortified by the participation in its affairs of those who are so exceptionally qualified to contribute to human well-being and to the preservation of the foundations of home and community life. It is with thoughts and convictions such as these that on behalf of the Canadian Federation of Business and Professional Women's Clubs, I now unveil the tablet which the Federation has erected in honor of the five women whose names it records. We now introduce one of the five women, an author, a well-known speaker, and the woman member of the Board of Governors of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, 
our own uh, Mrs. Nellie L. McConnell. Madam President, Mr. Prime Minister, fellow Canadians, I desire to thank the Prime Minister and the President, too, for their kind words. And I thank the Prime Minister still more for the kindness he showed to our little petition when it was just a little scrap of paper going the rounds and not very welcome any place. I also wish to thank Newton Wesley Rowell for his kindness in taking our petition to the Privy Council. And I also wish to thank Lord Sankey for his glorious decision. <laughs> so clear-cut and unmistakable and unanswerable. I would like very much tonight, dear friends, if I could express the corporate mind, not only of the five of us, but of all the people who have advanced the cause of women by ways seen and unseen, the great unnumbered, unremembered and unknown people who have done so much for us, the people whose names will never appear in the papers, people whose names we will never know. Because it has been a long task, because it has been an epic story, this rise of women. They had to begin from so far down. Women had first to convince the world that they had souls, and then that they had minds, and then it came on to this matter of political entity. And uh, the end is not yet. <laughs> we fear that there are still people who would sign a minority report. Now I do wish to pay my tribute of love and admiration to the other four women whose friendship I enjoyed and treasure for their loyalty, for their love, and for their steadfastness, for their wonderful companionship, Mrs. McKinney, Mrs. Muir Edwards, and Mrs. Parlby, whose message you will hear just in a moment. And particularly, I wish to give my tribute of praise to our undaunted and indomitable and incomparable leader, Emily F. Murphy. She didn't care who got the honor. She was never one to care who got the vote of thanks. She would joyfully pin a medal any time on somebody else. And you know, dear friends, I can't help but saying it now that we're all here together, that we would all be able to accomplish a great deal more if none of us cared who got the credit. And tonight, if she is listening from some of the islands of the blessed, I'm sure that there is no person who will hear the words of this ceremony with a lighter and a merrier heart. Charles Stewart, the third premier of Alberta from 1917 to 1921, was born on August 26th in Ontario. As Premier, he would campaign on prohibition and attempt to implement proportional representation in Alberta. His government also brought in several irrigation projects into southern Alberta to turn it from an arid area to one that could support widespread agriculture through the irrigation of 500,000 acres. A future Governor-General was also born this year, the Duke of Connaught, who was born on May 31, 1868 in London. He would eventually come to Canada in November 1916 and serve as Governor-General until 1921. I actually looked at his life, as well as the lives of every single Governor's General in Canadian history, on my other podcast, From John to Justin. His Royal Highness, the Duke of Connaught, 
visits Kingston Barracks to inspect the Surrey branches of the British Legion. He is received by Major Gilbert E. Cohen, commanding the parade. As many as 94 branches are represented, with 21 women sections, and they and their flags make a brave show on the parade ground. It gives me the greatest pleasure to be here with you all today. I am one of those who am a great believer in the power of doing good in this country by the British Legion. Your association is largely to promote good fellowship, good behavior, and kindness and thoughtfulness for others. Of course, several deaths would also occur in 1868 in Canada. Alexander Roberts Dunn would pass away on January 25th. He was born in 1833, and he was the first Canadian to be awarded the Victoria Cross. He was awarded the medal for his actions at the Battle of Balaclava in 1854, when he rescued a sergeant who had been cut down by Russian lancers attacking from the rear. Without a doubt, though, the most notable death was one of the Fathers of Confederation, Thomas Darcy McGee, who was assassinated, allegedly, by Patrick Whelan. McGee was called Canada's first nationalist because of his passion for Confederation. McGee had come to the United States in 1842 when he was 17, working in Boston and beginning to make a name for himself as a journalist. After briefly returning to Ireland, he came back to the United States in 1848 and over the 1850s began to pay more attention to Canadian politics. And during this time, he would actually promote the idea that the United States should annex Canada. He would state, quote, the United States of North America must necessarily, in course of time, absorb the northern British provinces. End quote. McGee then began to visit Canada, and over time his opinion shifted as he saw Irish immigrants treated better in Canada than in the United States. In the spring of 1857, McGee left the United States and moved to Montreal, where he established the publication New Era. He then started to support the cause of Canadian Confederation. In December of that year, he was elected to the province of Canada legislature, where he became known for his staunch support of Canadian nationhood. In 1864, he organized a diplomatic tour of the maritime colonies for delegates from the province of Canada in order to raise support for Confederation, and he would also attend the Charlottetown and Quebec conferences. It was also at this point he began to denounce the Fenians, who were an Irish national movement. McGee felt that they should follow the Canadian model of limited self-government within the British Empire. This earned him the label of traitor by many in the Irish community. Then, on April 7, 1868, he was shot outside his Ottawa home. The Kingston Whig reported, quote, As he reached his door and was in the act of opening it, a pistol shot was fired at him from behind, the ball entering the back of his head and escaping through his mouth, breaking several teeth. His lodging house keeper, who was up, alarmed by the shot, opened the front door when Mr. McGee fell heavily into the entrance, quite dead. End quote. Before long, Ontario Premier John Sanfield Macdonald and Prime Minister John A. Macdonald were on the scene, as were other members of Parliament. While Patrick Whelan was arrested, he maintained his innocence throughout his trial, but he would be convicted of murder and hanged in Canada's second last public hanging. McGee's funeral procession would run through Montreal flanked by a crowd of 80,000 people, or roughly 75% of the city's population. Several schools would be let out, and students would also attend the funeral. 
the Montreal Gazette wrote of the funeral, quote, Never since Jacques Cartier first planted the foot of a European on the site on which stands the great city of Montreal was there ever before a demonstration, either funeral or other, within its borders such as that which took place yesterday, End quote. Laura Secord, a hero of the War of 1812, would pass away on October 17th. Born on September 13, 1775, in Great Barrington to Thomas and Elizabeth Ingersoll, Laura would marry James Secord, a wealthy man in 1797. The couple would live in a house they had built in St. David's, where the first floor was a shop, and Secord would give birth to her first child, Mary, in 1799, followed by Charlotte in 1801, Harriet in 1803, Charles in 1809, and Apollonia in 1810. That's an interesting name. When the War of 1812 began, James Secord served in the first Lincoln Militia, and he would be one of the men to carry the body of General Isaac Brock off the battlefield after the general was killed at the Battle of Queenston Heights in October of 1812. In that battle, James was also injured in the shoulder. When Laura heard of his injury, she rushed to be with him. As she arrived, legend has it that she found three American soldiers about to beat him to death with their gunstocks. She begged them to save her husband, and she offered her own life in return. American Captain John E. Wool came up upon the situation and reprimanded the soldiers. Whether the story happened or not, it's actually not known, but it shows her bravery, at least a small glimpse of it. Her husband's injury was not embellishment, though, and she would spend the next several months nursing him back to health. On May 27th, my birthday, 1813, the American army launched an attack and captured Fort George, allowing the Americans to capture the Niagara and Queenston area. Men of military age were taken prisoner, but James Secord was not among them. In the next month, several U.S. soldiers would billet at the home of Secord, which would lead us to the legendary Walk of Secord. On June 21, 1813, when Laura Secord was in her home as the American soldiers stayed there, she would hear of the American plan to attack the troops of Lieutenant James Fitzgibbon at Beaver Dams. This attack, if successful, would give the Americans control of the Niagara Peninsula. The next morning, as her husband was still recovering, Secord began to walk to warn Lieutenant Fitzgibbon. She would walk 32 kilometers from Queenston to St. David's. Along the way, she would come across the camp of Mohawk warriors, who led her the rest of the way to the headquarters of Fitzgibbon. With her warning, the small British force and the Mohawk warriors readied for an attack. And when the Americans did attack on June 24th at the Battle of Beaver Dams, they would be defeated and many would be taken prisoner. In June of 1813, Laura Secord overheard the secret plans of the American soldiers in occupation. You raise your sword against Fitzgibbon, Upper Canada will be broken. How many men can we muster? 500 infantry, battery of artillery, my dragoons. Fitzgibbon can't manage more than 50 men, small band of natives. Not a serious resistance if um, you're equal to the enterprise. Pursue the advance two days hence. Take me to Fitzgibbon. Laura Secord delivered her message to the Canadian troops. The Kanawagi Mohawks forced the surrender of 500 Yankee soldiers, and the American invasion was stopped. Secord, despite her major role, was not mentioned in reports following the battle, despite her critical information. It should be noted, though, that Fitzgibbon may have purposely kept her name out of the reports to protect her family 
as he had no issues telling others about her contributions during the war. In the battle, 600 soldiers with the United States faced off against 400 Mohawks and 50 British troops. The battle would see 15 Mohawks killed and 20 British killed, while the Americans lost 25 men and had 50 wounded and 462 captured. The failure of the attack would cause the troops of Fort George to become demoralized, and they would abandon the fort on December 10th and rarely sent out patrols farther than a mile outside the fort when they did occupy it. Legends of her walk would change over the years. Some said she took a cow with her as an excuse to leave the property, while others says that she went barefoot to warn the troops. Secord herself would say, quote, I left early in the morning, end quote. The Secords continually tried to petition the government to acknowledge the efforts of Laura in the War of 1812, but they were unsuccessful. In 1860, when Secord was 85, the Prince of Wales visited Canada and found out about her story and that she was an aging widow. He would send her £100, worth about £12,000 today. The gift would be the only recognition Secord would receive in her entire life for what she did in June of 1813. And when she did pass away, nothing was written about her in the newspapers, despite her role in saving Canada during the War of 1812. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at 1868. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. And you can donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. And I also want to thank all of my wonderful patrons. And I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Tom McMillan. Mike Sullivan, Wendy Mills, Keelan Pringnitz, Michael Matthews, Joanna Parker, Jeff Dahl, Vobbs, Robert Page, Richard T., Colin Johnson, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nixon Ree, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Shove, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rois, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Information from, as told to me, Memories of Helen Courtier, Canadian Encyclopedia, Maclean's, Wikipedia, Ottawa Citizen, Montreal Gazette, and the Kingston British Whig. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.